encourage you to turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. We're reading at Hebrews 5 this morning, beginning at verse 11 and going through 6 verse 3. 5, 11 through 6, 3. As you turn there, I wonder if you have ever been interrupted by a disturbing thought. Maybe you get up and you, you pat your pockets or you dig into your purse and you realize, oh, I left the keys in the car. Or maybe you were making dinner, you're on a walk and you realize, oh, I was supposed to pick up the kids from a practice or a friend's house. Or I was supposed to be at that meeting tonight and it started 20 minutes ago. And you have these thoughts. And the pastor to the Hebrews, he has a disturbing thought and I don't think it was instantaneous, but it had been building to the point where he couldn't ignore this uh, anymore. He had to say something. He's exhorted the church to fix their gaze upon Christ, hold fast to their uh, confession, and he started to substantiate this message by looking at the qualifications of Jesus as high priest. He is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He reigns at the right hand of the Father and continues to intercede for uh, his people. Uh, as the eternal Son of God, he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We hear at the end of verse 10, and so you might be thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? Some archaic language there, not as familiar to us. Uh, and, and, he, and he leaves that hanging there because he's going to get back to it as we go into chapter 7 but he's interrupted. He has a disturbing thought and he can't let that go. So it doesn't seem to make sense for him to pick up yet until he's addressed this. So let's look at what he says in 5.11 here. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. That's as far as we are going to read uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your holy and enduring word. It's a word that you have ordained for us to to hear, to think through, and to receive from your hand this morning. I pray, Lord, that your word will be preached with faithfulness. I pray that we would have receptive hearts, ears, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to what is true and good, to what we need to hear this morning, that we might grow up and mature as followers of the Lord Jesus. So Lord, we are grateful, even an interruption that seems somewhat abrupt. Lord, we submit to your word now. You just want us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
living uh, for four years in a small town in North Iowa, you begin to learn a few things about your neighbors. Uh, some of you have experienced this. You've, you've lived, grown up in, in a small town environment. When I say small town, I mean the town is about the size of the Bear Paw community across the street. Um, that's you know, a square mile or so. And, uh, and so it is hard, you know, to, uh, to have much of a private life in a town that size. I remember going into the hardware store in Buffalo Center where we lived in Iowa, and there was a sign uh, that said, the nice thing about living in a small town is that if you don't know what you're doing, someone else does. Someone else knows what's going on. And so if you have, you know, personal business, it probably isn't going to be personal for very long. Um, just by the nature of small town, it can feel like meddling at times because of just how close you are. And, and it may feel that way as we read these verses in Hebrews this morning. You know, if the pastor wants to talk about the goodness of God, uh, the faithfulness of our high priest, well, that's good. You know, preach it, brother. But if he wants to talk about our shortcomings or ways to improve our spiritual lives and examine ourselves, and that, that's kind of meddling a little bit. So if this is getting a little personal, this feels like meddling, don't blame me, he started it. I'm just, <laughs> just passing this along. But there's something that's bothering him. It's causing him to break this train of thought on Jesus as high priest so he can address the attention of his audience. He needs them to listen up, to give attention, and to grow up spiritually. And so we're going to take this in two parts. We're going to look at two questions. Where are they now? Meaning, where is their attention? What is their actual ability to comprehend what it is he's saying? And then where are they going? So where are they now? Where are they, where are they going? What is his desire for them? And this sets up another warning in the verses that follow, which we'll look at uh, in a couple of weeks. So he wants to talk to them more about the high priestly work of Jesus, but he's not sure that they're ready. They've become dull of hearing in verse 11. So to take that as literally as we can, your ears are lazy. You are slow to understand what it is I'm saying. Hey, you're starting to meddle here, Pastor. Okay, but, but you need to hear it. You know, if we, if we develop you know, natural hearing problems, there's things that we can do to correct that. We can clean out our ears really good, or, or maybe we need uh, some amplification so that we can, can hear better. But these church members have developed a spiritual hearing problem. So they're either slow to learn what he's saying, or they're having a hard time just keeping up, keeping pace, and applying what it is um, that they've learned in their situation here. Now it's important to remember that they have learned some things. They have learned the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been proclaimed to them. They've been identified with the church. I mean, they, they know the scriptures. Look at how many Old Testament references this pastor has used already. They seem to be stuck or unwilling to grow deeper than the basic principles, you read in verse 12, or the elementary doctrine of Christ in 6 verse 1. So he said they should be teachers by this point, sharing what they have learned and living, living in confidence, 
of what they've learned. And they don't seem to be doing that. But how do we, how do we know that they've been instructed well in the faith, that they already have a solid foundation? There are actually several ways that we can pick up on this. Uh, the first, I think, is, is simply what I've mentioned, the references to the Old Testament scriptures. They knew their Bibles, or this pastor assumed that they knew their Bibles well. And another reason, it's later in chapter 10, I'm going to just read this for you in chapter 10, 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So do you hear what he's saying? There was a time when these, these Christians were living out and acting much more mature than what they are right now. They already demonstrated some skill in the word of righteousness. But he finds them either not believing or pretending that they are less mature than what they really are. So instead of teaching, they, they need the ABCs. They're, they're sipping on on the milk of the Christian faith. Now, now milk is very, very important. Remember when I was younger, I had this experience on, on a dairy farm, and the owners of the dairy farm asked if I would help in feeding the calves. So they had just this row of these hutches with these some very young calves, some a little bit older. And uh, they gave me this bottle, and it looked like a big baby bottle. And they said, here, just, just hang on to it while they're drinking. I said, well, yeah, no problem, piece of cake. So I come up with this bottle, and the first calf latches onto that bottle, and it took two hands, and it had a good grip for me to hold on to this thing while this calf is uh, sucking out this milk. It's necessary. They're hungry for it. Nowhere in this section do we read that this milk is bad. We all need this spiritual milk. And he even he gives a short list and what this milk includes. And I saw five main ingredients to the spiritual milk, this elementary doctrine in verses 1 and 2. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. You cannot clean yourself up enough. You cannot earn eternal salvation. This is the grace of God. So we must put our trust and faith in what only God can provide. And then he says instruction about washings. This could be several different things. Uh, I think it's closely connected with the laying on of hands. Instruction about um, baptismal. Instructions about baptisms is the language. Maybe they were stuck on what is the real difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. Or maybe this was the washings required uh, in the Old Testament, for cleansing, separation unto holiness, the laying on of hands was also a, a means of setting apart, setting apart a sacrifice for the people, or setting apart a priest from the people to minister before God. Those belonging to Christ were, were set apart. So these, these are elementary doctrines of identity within uh, 
the church and the community of God's people. In the resurrection of the dead, it was believed, it was anticipated by the church, along with the eternal judgment of God. There would be resurrection unto life or resurrection unto judgment. So it's important and necessary uh, milk. Uh, but these brothers and sisters needed more. They were ready for more if they're going to hold fast and endure in this specific time of trial. But uh, before we look at where they're going and the need to mature in the faith, we need to ask ourselves, where are we now? What, what, what is our attention? What ability do we have to listen to the word of God? I think we need to consider this for a moment. I know it'll sound like meddling a little bit. But have you grown spiritually dull of hearing? Do you have lazy ears that tend to check out when the word of God is read or preached? Or maybe it's by familiarity that we check out. Well, I've read that passage 50 times. I know what it says. Time to move on to something else. Why bother with that? I mean, we, we, get, we get lazy in our spiritual disciplines. Especially when those spiritual disciplines get hard. When something gets difficult, when it's hard to pray, when it's hard to, to be consistent in the word. When it's maybe hard to have that follow-up conversation with someone in the church family. I mean, that, that's when it's much easier to say, well, I'm done. I'm quitting this. Walking in obedience is hard. In the Christian life, in union with the Lord Jesus, is, is a delight, but it is more difficult than it is easy. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross at some point in his life and follow me. That's not what he says. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Here I think of you know, the late 15th century, early 16th century, and the the church universal has really become dull of hearing. Checked out from the authority of God's word, the power of God's word to transform lives. Checked out from any real knowledge of God's word. So it was the early reformers, reformers like Savonarola, who was a friar in Italy. Men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, Germany, or Martin Luther in Germany, Calvin in uh, Switzerland, along with Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox in Scotland, William Tyndall in England, reading the Bible in English to his fellow students, and they said of, of Tyndall, he was singularly addicted to the scriptures. <laughs> Not a bad thing to, to be labeled, it's addicted to the scriptures. So the church had a major hearing problem, and these men were we're calling all people, from the peasant to the pope, to listen up. You know what, something, something may be said this morning, right here in worship, as a part of this message, or maybe it's a verse that we have, have sung, or a phrase in a prayer that you really need to hear. Because something may happen later today, or tomorrow, or this week, and you will need to lean on that. Maybe a promise of God. Maybe a 
word of warning? Let's be listening. So the early church seems, seems stuck in this, let's say, childlike belief and behavior. And I think it's important we hear the difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. Because there's a difference. The strongest, the most consistent, the most articulate believer in the Lord Jesus has a childlike faith. The strong believer trusts in the Lord God, trusts in his goodness and wisdom. There's a, a dependence upon the Lord. Just as a child trusts and depends on, on those who, who love them. But a childish faith is different. A childish faith is is really ignorant of the word of righteousness. It doesn't know or maybe even care or think it needs to think upon the word, the deep things of God. We must know God's word if we're going to apply the wisdom of God's word, distinguish between good and evil, as the preacher mentions here. So it's a child who lives on, on milk, that's expected, but if they're going to grow up and mature, they need the meat and potatoes. They need solid uh, food. And this is what we see um, these early Christians are called to, what their pastor desires of them. Time to go on to maturity, grow up in the faith, exercising that faith. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Again, I want you to hear a desire there, to hear a goal with that statement. We want to share what's been entrusted to us by God. We should desire to, to grow up and teach others in the faith. So you may think to yourself, well, I don't, I, mean, I don't have the unique gift of knowledge or teaching. But the longer you follow Jesus, the more time that you've spent in the Word and have to apply discernment, the more that you're able to pass along what it is you've learned, what the Lord has taught you on this spiritual journey. And that's something we desperately need in the church. So we're all instructed, not just some of us, but all, to teach the next generation in the fear of the Lord. So go on to maturity. And I, I really believe that the center of the church's mission, mission for all disciples, equip disciples and deploy disciples uh, who are mature in Christ. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was his goal. And to the Corinthian church, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. This matters. Growing in the faith is important because it's an immature disciples, the immature church that is tossed to and fro, Paul says in Ephesians 4. It's like waves being carried along by every wind of doctrine. And it's also the immature, those have who have regressed in the faith, who have a very hard time enduring when the pressure is on. Because the pressure is on these Christians. Will they identify with Christ and suffer, suffer for his name? The pressure is only going to increase 
the church of the Lord Jesus in our time? Will we identify with Christ? Hold fast to, for the glory of his name. We need to mature ourselves and for those uh, who come behind us. So how do we do this? How do we mature, grow in, uh, in our skill in the word of righteousness? And he tells us in verse 14, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it isn't automatic. It comes with training. I mean, you, you and I, we know that if we have a skill and we don't put it into practice, it's going to leave us. It's going to slip away. If you enjoyed uh, roller skating or ice skating you know, as a kid, you could just fly around that rink. Uh, but now it's been you know, 25 or 30 years since you put skates on. Please make sure someone else is with you when you go so they can take you to the hospital after you've tried to do what you could do when you were 10 years old. The skill might come back, but you've regressed. It will take practice. We need practice in making sound moral decisions in the Christian life. And it's all those, all those little decisions between good and evil, between what God desires of us in holiness and what we are, are tempted to with the, the allurement and the, the enticement of our sinful desires. Okay, remember, desire is a good thing. God gives us desire. God himself desires. He desires after his people. He desires worshipers. But so often in our own spiritual battle, our desires are twisted. Our desires are hijacked so that we desire worshipers. And we make decisions, however small, that keep us that keep us on the throne of our own personal kingdoms. Little decisions. So these little decisions prepare us for a much bigger, more significant moral decisions need to be made. Like, are you going to stand with Christ and the truth of his word? And the mature can say, well, yes. How can I do anything else? Because there's been a pattern of trust and of you know, consistent obedience in the little decisions. It was just one R-rated movie or mature video game. I mean, you know, what's the big deal? Well, then, then it's another film of similar genre and another, you know, video game time. And slowly you are desensitized to the filth. Little decisions. Your family or friend says, hey, you know, We've got some plans for this upcoming Sunday. You're a good Christian. You go to worship most Sundays. Why don't you just skip, skip this one and come with us? You're going to have a good time. You, you can justify that to yourself. Okay, well, I'll miss this week in worship. But then it becomes much easier to miss again. And then again. And then you look back and worship is like a pastime instead of a very present and necessary reality in your life. You know, inflation is on the rise, right? I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon. Budget's getting tighter. There's some unexpected expenses. So I don't think I can really tithe or offer anything to the Lord this week. And then that week turns into two. Then it turns into a month. To the point where, well, 10%, any percent of what God has entrusted seems like, you know, an impossible 
thing to do. Little decisions. And so this is, this is training in righteousness. Training to discern. This is all gospel training. It's listening to the voice of God and, and going deeper into the realities of God's grace in our lives. Working in these, these basic principles. Loving the Lord Jesus of these principles is what enables us to grow. When you think about this, we have all that we need to grow. We have all that we need to mature. And it's not a certain doctrine. It's not a certain idea. It's not a, a list of behaviors. We have the person of Jesus Christ. And it's from his, his enduring love that we draw our strength. From his tender embrace that we can mature. And in a letter to some friends, we're asking this very question of John Newton. He said, how do we grow? How do we mature in the Lord? This is what John Newton wrote. So the best advice I can send, the best wish that I can form for you, is that you may have an abiding and experiential sense of those words of the apostle which are just now upon my mind. Looking unto Jesus. The duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. Looking unto Jesus is the object that melts the soul into love and gratitude. So in the face here of what was likely a, a life-threatening situation for the church, you know, they're, they're regressing in spiritual immaturity. So the power of the Holy Spirit, the pastor is, is meddling a bit. He encourages them to act out of, act out of the truth of what they know out of the truth of the one they love. And this phrase, word of righteousness, in verse 13 there, carried a little significance to the early Christians that has been lost on us. To know or to be skilled in the word of righteousness was actually a call to hold fast to Christ. It was a call to self-denial even if that meant giving one's life. And so we'd say the martyrs were skilled in the word of righteousness. They could give their lives because they had their eyes of faith fixed upon Christ. Great high priest had given his life for them. I mean, so many of the reformers, they faced execution. Many of our brothers and sisters today will go to their deaths looking unto Jesus. One who loves them, the one who holds them, who goes with them right through death and into eternity. So will that be how you and I respond when we're faced with similar situations? Will the decisions that we are making today make that easier or harder to stand fast, to hold to our confession? Let the preacher be a little meddling in your hearts this morning. Good meddling. We might look unto Jesus and grow up in the faith. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this difficult word. Lord, you know exactly what it is we need. Forgive us when we have grown dull of hearing.
draw us back. Draw us back into the, the truth and the realities of your grace for us. You have lavished us with your love. You know us completely and you delight to commune with us. And so it's in this union with you, Lord Jesus, that we, that we grow up, that we find our strength. Hold fast. Nourish us now with this word as we take it from this place. In Christ's name, amen.